Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we today? Hey, it's great to see you. My name is Billy, and uh, I live in Brentwood, which is a small town about 28 miles from here, where the fruit is sweeter and the houses are slightly cheaper. Um, <laughs> as Steve said, we are kicking off a brand new uh, series today that's going to take us into the better part of the summer, and we're looking at the story of Israel during one of her most difficult periods in history. So I want us to get in our DeLoreans. I'm going to take you back in time. We're going to go to the year 480 BC, 480 BC. And the location is actually not Israel. Instead, we're going to take you to the city of Susa, the great capital center of the Persian Empire, one of the oldest cities on the planet. It's been continuously inhabited for 6,000 plus years. It's actually located here on the map. You see it's located in uh, what is now uh, southern Iraq. Here it is. Uh, and, then, uh, and then it's actually a thousand miles from Jerusalem, a thousand miles of some of the toughest terrain on the planet. Jerusalem, Jerusalem at this point in time has been destroyed. God's people don't live there anymore. God's people are in what we call exile. This is the exilic period of Israel's timeline. Jerusalem, about 90 years prior to 480, so in 586, Jerusalem was destroyed and many people were killed. Those who weren't killed were taken captive and relocated into the Babylonian Empire. They're scattered all throughout Babylon. And then what happened, shortly after Babylon did this, they themselves were conquered by the Persians. And the Israelites were sort of caught up in this backwash, right? Tossed to and fro. They're like chess pawns amongst these great superpowers. And so this now is a time when Israel had no king, no army, no land, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no prophets, no identity, and no voice at all. They were a small religious minority living at the mercy of a ruthless pagan king. And yet, and yet, God raised up and God empowered and God blessed incredible leaders, leaders who influenced their environment such that God's purposes still prevailed in these adverse circumstances, God's will went forward. And this summer, we're going to draw from the lives of some of these great leaders, Esther, Mordecai, Nehemiah, and the people in these stories. They were living in a society that was dominated by spiritual and moral values that were at great variance to their own, and yet they flourished as leaders. So this series asks, well, how in the world did this flourishing happen? How did this, how did this take place? The series also asks, what can you and I learn from their example and put into practice in our own leadership contexts? And then lastly, our series will explain, or at least attempt to explain, how we can follow God in our situation here in the East Bay when the Christian point of view is not very widely accepted. In some ways, there's a point of contact to what the Israelites were experiencing in, in exile. Now, about leadership, because some, some people may say, well, I'm not a leader, okay? I'm too young, no one follows me. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a, a position of leadership in my company, at my work, and so I'm not sure this series really applies to me. 
And so to that, I would like to just encourage you to look at leadership perhaps in a different way that you've looked at it prior to this series. Look at it beyond position and formal titles. I want you to look at leadership with this. Leadership is influence. Everybody say this now with me. Leadership is influence. And if leadership is influence, which it is, then we all have the capacity to influence other people's lives, don't we? Everyone has the capacity to influence another person. Everyone has the capacity to lead someone else. And that's at our workplace, in our families, our neighborhood, our school, wherever we are. I mean, just think about the influence that a snotty Starbucks employee has on your life in the morning. It does have an influence, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Now, I don't know any snotty Starbucks employees. I've never met one. I'm just speaking hypothetically. So what I'm saying is we're actually all leaders and influencers, and thus we can derive a lot of value from our series. And so in many ways, the books that we're going to be studying um, all summer long are just uh, commentaries on leadership and how to do leadership. And so uh, we see that in, in actually how not to do leadership, good and bad leaders here, and we get to learn and grow from them. So for today, guys, let's go ahead and start digging into our, our, uh, our content. We're going to look at the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at chapters one and two of Esther. And as per usual, whenever I teach, we're not going to be able to dig into every single one of these passages. So what I'm going to do is tell the story and then drop into some specific verses and then see how we can uh, grow from them. So what we're going to do now is then read a few of these verses starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Here's what it says. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire stretching from India to Kush. And at that time, King Xerxes was reigning from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. And for a full 180 days, Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Basically, you have a raging narcissist who throws a six-month-long party primarily for the purpose of flexing his muscles and showing off how awesome he is. Now skip down to verse 10 where we pick it up at the end of this frat party. King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine and he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and there are their names, he commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and he burned with anger. So this drunk king, as I said, is bragging about how awesome and powerful he is, and soon he begins to brag about uh, what a lot of guys like this brag about, about how beautiful his wife is. And then at some point, he summons her to show her off in front of hundreds and hundreds of drunk men. Dress beautifully and exhibit yourself. And what does the queen, queen do? She refuses, she says no. She says no way. And by the way, we read later that, man, Vashti paid the price for this, okay? She just did. 
She wasn't killed. She could have been killed. She didn't know if she was going to be killed or not. She wasn't killed, but she basically was confined away from the rest of society the, her entire life. She was, she, was, she was exiled into desolate isolation. Now, it doesn't say here in the text why Vashti refused to obey her king. It doesn't say, but many of the commentators, and actually, we just kind of put ourselves in this situation and use some common sense, and it tells us exactly why. She says no, because she does not want to be sexually objectified by this horde of drunken men. Now, to say this is a dangerous situation for her is an understatement, and then you add in an intoxicated, an inebriated, and an unpredictable king, and it's not hard to imagine why she stayed the heck away, is it? I just want to pause for just a second, all right, and consider not only our story, but let's also consider the times in which we live, the current times in which we live, and I just want to ask a question. How contemporary is this story? How relevant is this biblical account? I mean, you could not get more contemporary than this, could you? You know, so many people, they, they, they accuse the Bible of being just so out of date and irrelevant and antiquated and patriarchal and digressive and all these things. And yet here we have a straightforward biblical account of a woman who says bravely no to the shameful treatment from a man who is attempting to use her as just another object of his wealth. For six months, he's parading trophies and things, you know, objects of wealth in front of these guys, and then she knew she was just the next item in line, and she's like, no, I'm not doing it. You know, change a few details, change a few details, and we might as well be reading about an actress who's refusing the advances of a creepy Hollywood producer that just happened last month. So we have such a relevant, relevant book and study for us, and it's an incredible act of actually, it's, it's an incredible act of bravery. Just take it for what it is. It's an ancient act, but it has a couple of contemporary implications. Just quickly, just things that I just kind of, all right, here's what I saw here. The first one is this. It's kind of obvious, but we're reminded when we read this story of how long the battle has been going for women to be treated like human beings and not like objects. It's been going on for a long time, hasn't it? It's been going on for 2,500 years. This was 2,500 years, actually before this it was happening and it's still happening. And that's sad to me, it's very sad, but it's the truth and we have to face the truth if we're gonna change how things are. We have to face the truth. Now speaking of changing things, the second implication is this, is for you and me, we can draw some encouragement and inspiration from this passage because we can make a difference. We can make a difference in empowering women today to use their gifts and abilities without the accompanying uh, objectification and abuse that so often happens. We can make a difference as Christ followers, not just here at church, but where we work, where we live, in our homes, where we play. This kind of dehumanizing behavior is darkness, guys, and we have the light of Jesus inside of us, and whenever you place the light of Jesus in a dark situation, guess what happens to the darkness? It gets chased away. And that, that means that we have a mission in this. And it's a part to play. There's a part to play. And I want to honor God. And I want us to honor one another in this pursuit. Just a couple of contemporary implications. But there's another thing to note here. If you press forward in the story, uh, because of Va uh, Vashti's defiance, if you keep reading, all the men in the king's court start to freak out. 
they flip out because they're worried, and, they, and it says this, they're worried if their own wives use Vashti's defiance as an example, then man, they're never gonna do anything that their husbands want them to do anymore. And so, they're like, hey king, we better do something because your wife is giving our wives ideas. And the king's like, yeah, yeah, we're, you're right, we gotta do something here, this is nuts. And so they put their little pea brains together and they come up with two things. They say, well, first of all, you gotta get a new queen, she's out. Second of all, what they did was they passed a new law, a new royal decree demanding that Persian wives respect their husbands. So they write up this royal law and they painstakingly send it out to all 127 provinces in the empire. This was a big deal. They had to make copies. We think they actually might have chiseled it into these cylinders. This was kind of the Persian way. It was like these round cylinders. You can see some of these cylinders now at the British Museum in London, which is a cool place. Elton John's there maybe, I don't know. He might be there, he may not. But they sent it out and they've said, it's illegal for a wife not to give her husband respect. And the kicker is the king and all of his guys were so impressed with themselves. The author says uh, in, in verse 121, the king and his nobles were pleased. Now, how ridiculous is this? Can you legislate respect? Can you imagine leading like this? Even in ancient times, this is bad. This is a royal court of idiots. Now. <laughs> The thing about Xerxes, you have to know this, and this is real. When you translate his name into some different languages, actually including Hebrew, it literally means this, King Headache. <laughs> I think the Persian wives would say to us, they maybe through time, hey, you think your leader's a bad leader, you think your leader gives you headaches, let me tell you about our guy. He's the king of headaches. He's the king chief headaches. It's so bad, it's just so bad. Now, this gives us some pause to actually just juxtapose the Xerxes model of marital respect with the Apostle Paul's in the New Testament. Because the Apostle Paul, about 500 years after this was written, he wrote uh, a letter to the Ephesian church in the New Testament. And he also talked about the, resp uh, the respect of a wife towards her husband. Here's what Paul said. Paul said that the respect of a wife towards her husband is freely given. It's not commanded. It's not legislated. It's given, but it's given in an environment of reciprocity, of mutual submission and loving sacrifice, the husband towards the wife. And so the husband earns his wife's respect by putting her needs above his own. And the husband earns his, wife, his wife's respect by putting her flourishing above his own because that's what Jesus does for us. He sacrificed himself on behalf of us. And so Paul says, hey husbands, be like Jesus. Sacrifice yourself for your wife. And so we learn here an important lesson that you can't give something if you're commanded to give it. That's nonsense, isn't it? So therefore, you have to give it freely. Now, any respect you would give under this pretense is fake respect anyways. Huge differences in these two models on every side. Since we're talking about respect and leadership, let me expand this just a little bit. Here's the teaching. When you demand respect, 
instead of earning respect, you're not worthy of the respect. When you demand it instead of earning it, you're not worthy of it, you're not. This applies to all areas of life, not just marriage. Here's the leadership lesson, let's just distill it down into this. Don't demand respect, earn it. Don't demand respect, earn it. This is what we learned from the book of Esther. Be worthy of people's respect. As a parent, be worthy of your kids' respect. Don't just assume they should give you respect. Be worthy of it with your behavior and your conduct. As a boss, be worthy of your coworkers' respect. As a manager, as a coworker, be worthy. As a coach, as a teacher, whatever your context, earn it. Earn the respect. I'm not talking about earning salvation. I'm talking about earning respect in leadership. Because why? The world needs great Christian leaders who aren't jerks. You want to repair the fabric of the East Bay and you want to make an impact for the gospel, then be the greatest leader that you can be in whatever situation you find yourself, but you earn people's respect. Now, some people may say to this, well, actually, Billy, that's not entirely accurate because I'm in a role where I am given respect because of my position. People respect the chair that I sit in. And so that's just, that's just a kind of given respect. And that's actually a real thing. You know this, right? We call this positional authority or positional respect. And this is true, but the problem is if we over-rely on that, we're hurting ourselves. And in my experience, a fair amount of this type of positional respect is just fear-based. People fear because their livelihoods are on the line, or they fear because they feel powerless in that, pos in that position. You know, you know what happens to people who rely only on positional respect? You know what happens to them? They become a headache. They become a Xerxes. Don't be a Xerxes. Don't give people headaches with your leadership style. Okay, tough question alert. Is your leadership causing headaches? How do you know? When you interact with someone and they do this, okay? <laughs> they grimace. Or when you walk away, they grimace. Is that you? Mmm. Hashtag real talk. <laughs> this is, this kind of, this series is designed for some self-reflection. Because I can't answer this for you. Because I'm not around you. But maybe you could ask those who are around you. Am I, um... Am I acting in such a way that would earn your respect, not just because I hold a position of authority? And maybe you don't even. But if you do, now, speaking of doing, how do you do this? How do you earn people's respect? There's a lot of ways you can do this. Actually, the Bible is filled with this. A couple of examples. You could be reliable. Be reliable in your workplace, in your leadership, in your family. Follow through on what you say you're going to do. Uh, be kind to people. Be kind to people. Kindness will increase your leadership influence uh, exponentially. You can crush it in your performance. You can not mail it in. You can stop mailing it in if you're mailing it in and be prepared and go the extra mile. Go beyond what's expected of you. Crush it at work. Clear obstacles for others so that they can flourish. If you do have some uh, modicum of power, then use your power and position to help clear obstacles for others. We call this having a servant leader mentality. A servant leader says, hey, how can I help you? How can I come alongside of you? How can I use my abilities and my position to make your life better, to 
help you reach your goals to make you successful. And I'll even sacrifice some of my own um, capacity in this and my own success to make you better. That's what a servant leader does. That's how a servant leader thinks. That's how a servant leader acts. Who has modeled this for you? Who has earned your respect? What leader do you admire because they have poured into your life this way? Do you have anybody like this? I was just thinking through my own life, I've been blessed to have many leaders in my life. Early in my life as a teenager, uh, God brought to my, um, into my circle my ninth grade English teacher and basketball coach. His name's Doug Reese. And Doug, we're still friends today. Doug's retired from McMinnville High School. He's an incredible guy. But as a public school teacher, Doug had a tremendous impact on my life because, why? Because of his servant leadership approach. He was always pouring into us and teeing us up for success and giving us what we needed, clearing obstacles so that we could be uh, reaching our potential. Now, I found out later that Doug was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at this point in my life. Actually, I found out that Doug was a Christian because Doug came to my dad's funeral when I was 14. And I remember the funeral was over with and he came up to me and he gave me a hug and he told me he was praying for me. I don't think anybody had ever done that before. And then he gave me this little book on like how to handle grief and it was all about turning to Christ. And I read that book when I got home and I was literally being exposed to the gospel for the very first time. He kept checking up on me um, after this and, and he would drop by the farm where I lived and from time to time asked to take me fishing and so we would go fishing in the Oregon coastal hills. And, and I have a feeling that Doug was teeing me up for success even there because I always caught more fish than this guy, always, every time. Hmm. God worked through this leader, Doug Reese, to make a difference in my life that changed the course of my life. Who is that for you? Who is that for you? Better yet, who are you influencing like this? Because if you're not influencing people at this level, even if it's not as demonstrative as how I'm describing, boy, we have room to grow as leaders, don't we? As influencers. Jesus followers get what I'm talking about because these are the kinds of things that Jesus does. We see Jesus leading like this throughout the Gospels. In fact, here's a surefire way to increase your leadership. You know what it is? This is guaranteed. This is guaranteed. I hardly ever say stuff like this. But this is just a law of leadership. If you want your leadership influence to grow, then lead like Jesus. Be a servant leader. Have a servant's heart. And pretty soon, you help people, you come alongside people, you encourage people, you're kind to people, you're prepared at work, you overperform you're, you're, you uh, what is expected of you, and your leadership quotient will grow and grow and grow and grow and You know what? The cream always rises to the top. That's what my dad taught me on the farm. Mm. The making of a leader, the series title, is really just the making of a disciple. This is why this is so relevant for us. Speaking of influence, all right, let's get into Esther now because we've met King Xerxes. We've met Vashti. Now let's meet this orphan girl who becomes queen of the most powerful empire on earth. Her name is Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. And Esther was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. 
In chapter two, Esther winds up being part of this empire-wide search for Xerxes' new queen. So after what we read in, verse, in chapter one, Xerxes actually goes to Greece and loses a war famously, and he comes back a couple years later and then engages in the search for his new queen. And so women from all over the provinces are brought to Susa. From amongst that group, Xerxes would decide who he wanted. So let's pick it up actually in verse eight of chapter two. So when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Now Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. And she pleased Haggai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and then he moved Esther and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, we're not told, again, why Mordecai was coaching Esther to be so secretive about her ethnicity, but the prevailing theory here is is that Mordecai had become aware of a growing and insidious streak of anti-Semitism that was propagating itself around the empire. Now, this will erupt, if you know this book, this will erupt in full force a few chapters later. But at this point, things were getting complex. Mordecai picks up on it, and so he wisely tries to protect his cousin slash daughter. And now she, in turn, Esther, wisely follows his advice. So let's keep reading down. Uh, Skip down to verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king, verse 17, was more attracted to Esther than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And so Xerxes set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. There's just so much happening here. And... Perhaps there's a lot of different directions I could go, but I want to focus on the complexity of what's happening here. Uh, Things are are complicated. And if you read commentaries and you read articles and scholars and theologians, uh, at this point in the book, people get really hard on Esther. They start to criticize her. They start to kind of drop the hammer on her. They'll say, they'll say things like, well, Esther really compromises her values in this chapter. She, she uh, breaks Sabbath law. She breaks dietary law. She has relations with an unbeliever. And then she marries an unbeliever. And all of these would have been strict 
violations of Torah law. And so people are like, yeah, that's not good. She didn't, she didn't, uh, she didn't stand up. And then, and then the accusation too is that she was super compliant, like really compliant. You know, you have this example in Vashti where Vashti's like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. She draws a line, man. She sets a boundary. And then you have Esther and she's sort of like capitulating here and allowing the Persian leadership system to kind of, she just gets swept up into it. And she's not really resisting here. And so people really have issue, they take issue with Esther. And I gotta tell you, that really bugs me. That really bothers me. That makes me, that makes me angry. Because I think it's a complete oversimplification of her circumstances. None of us really knows what it's like to be in this situation. How would we have reacted given the givens here? What would we have done? This is a complicated deal. For example, you have a young Jewish woman who likely is taken into custody. She's taken and forcibly placed into this harem, this weird harem. And what Xerxes did was just totally gross. This was not normal. And this was not good. He was stealing women. And the women that he didn't choose, just like Vashti, would be relegated to isolation. They couldn't go back to their families. They couldn't have a life. They got provided for, but that was it. Their life was over with. That's the you know, bravado of this type of stuff. It's bad. It's bad. And on top of that, you also, as I said, you have this growing undercurrent of intense dislike and racism that's now affecting the entire Jewish subpopulation here. And then you've got the fact that any slightest act of disobedience towards this king can get you killed. And it can get your family killed. So this isn't just such a neat and tidy thing. It's complicated. It's a minefield. One wrong step and boom, it's over with. Your life is over. The story's over. But despite this, Esther and Mordecai, they lead impeccably. How? How did they lead so impeccably? It's because they understood the complexity and they reacted accordingly. It's astounding leadership. You're going to see this. If you've never read this book, you've got to read this book. It's incredible. There's so much here. It's astounding. Now, the idea of leading when things get complicated really stood out to me. Now, here's how this hits me. Here's what I've noticed here and in life. Effective leaders navigate complexity. That's the teaching. Effective leaders navigate complexity. In fact, let me just add a little hot sauce to this. Effective leaders eat complexity for lunch. That's really what happens. Have you noticed this? Effective leaders somehow take the complex milieu of just junk that's happening and they sort of slice right through it and they get stuff done. They lead through it. They lead around it. They lead, they just jump over it. They tunnel underneath it. They're aware of it. They notice it and they strategize through it. Really what this is, what we're talking about is a type of godly wisdom applied to leadership. Being a wise leader to walk that razor's edge with these complex forces. Now, let's take it to our situation here in the East Bay. The East Bay ain't Persia. I get that. But our own context can also be pretty complicated. Would you agree? There's multiple factors in play. For example, there's those social games 
with the unwritten rules, that we don't even know the rules, and then there's rules, and then we figure them out later. Too late. There's clicks. There's passive aggressive people who kiss you on the cheek, and then you walk out of the room, and then there's a knife in your back. There's people who um, play favorites. Oh, isn't that the greatest? Uh, they also, there's people who love to hoard information and then not share it when they should be as a way of exercising control. And I'm just describing Thanksgiving dinner. At least in my house I am. What's yours like? What about the office? There's good old office politics. There's those that try to manipulate us with money and incentives. And then there's, oh my goodness, boss moodiness. The moody boss that causes everybody to be on edge and you never know when the right time is to ask for something or to propose a new initiative because everybody's always taking the temperature of the guy and you're just like, this place is crazy, I never know what to do here. I could go on and on. Things get complicated quickly in our world and yet one thing I've noticed is that effective leaders navigate this stuff with poise and grace and still accomplish great things. Good leaders navigate complexity. Now, there's a lot of leadership books and material on this very topic, how great leaders will take complex things and reduce them down into you know, executable goals and all of this. There's a lot of, if you go to Barnes & Noble, is there even, is that place, did that go place go bankrupt yet? All right, you go on Amazon or whatever and you find out all this material on how to simplify things, that's a trait of great leaders. But here's one quick factor that I see that was operating here in Esther and Mordecai's life that allowed them to do this. And it's right here in the text. I'll just give it to you and then we'll explain it. They both prioritized family. Effective leaders prioritize family. This is one way to build up the strength in your life so that you can lead well through complicated situations. Look back at verse seven. It says Mordecai adopted his cousin and took her for his own daughter. And then in verse 11, we just read it. It says he went and checked in on her every single day to make sure she was doing well. There's no way, okay? No way Esther could have accomplished what she accomplished, what God did through her without Mordecai. And there's no way Mordecai could have accomplished what God did through him without Esther. They were a strong family. They were bonded. They were loyal. They were close. They were tight. There was a strong relationship there that even evil could not separate them. Throughout this entire crazy story, they were a strong family. They, prior, they prioritized their family. Here's some of the things they did in their prioritization. They involved each other in their decisions. They involved each other in their decisions. Are you involving each other in your decisions? They trusted one another. They acted trustworthy towards one another so the trust could be given. And then they followed each other's advice. I want to challenge you um, right now on this one. When was the last time you followed someone's advice that was close like family? If you haven't done that lately, do that. Make sure it's decent advice. <laughs> but sometimes I think we, go get, we get so stubborn and we get so self just self-propelled that we don't really want anybody else's input Okay, the next slide, I'm supposed to go forward. Family is our first and best leadership context. This is God's will for us. Our families provide us with love and support that we need to reach our full potential. Our families 
are so important. Remember, though, Esther and Mordecai were not the standard nuclear family. She was an orphan. She was adopted. And what this means is even from a biblical perspective, family can be so much more than just one format. Some of us in the East Bay, for example, our families are very fractured by divorce. Is that true? Some of our family trees look more like a blackberry bush on fire on the side of a hill. <laughs> That's our family, Christy. Uh, she's right there, the beautiful lady right over there. She can tell you this, between our four parents, we love our parents, but our four parents, we think have been divorced 10 or 11 times. We can't even keep track. I mean, we have like steps, brothers and sisters, and ex-step brothers and sisters, and, and ex-grandmas, and our kids, they get presents from grandmas and they don't even know their names. So we have a big Excel spreadsheet on our wall. <laughs> it's crazy how fractured family can get. And I know I'm kind of making light of it, but there's a lot of pain there. But just because you have that, or if that's you, doesn't mean that you can't have a strong family. Or uh, our families are so geographically like far from one another today. And so what God does when those types of things get thrust upon us is that he provides other types of family for us. And here at church is one of those places. In fact, I would say it's the best place. And so look around you. Those are your family. This is your family. I know, I know. It's, some of them are goofy looking, but just got to get past that. <laughs> See, we have spiritual family. And we have these types of relationships that God brings in our life so that we can actually live out our full potential as Christ followers. And that love and that support and that healing can come from God's family. And that's why we so talk about community groups because that's a common place for family relationships, spiritual family relationships to develop. So I want to encourage you, if you're not in a community group, do that today. Go sign up. We've got a wonderful Next Steps table outside. You can sign up for one of those and, and be on your way towards building these types of relationships. Whatever leadership path you're on, none of these paths can be walked alone. And so God makes provision for us. Okay, my time is done. Believe it or not, we've just scratched the surface. Esther is now queen, but this is not the end. This is just the beginning. There are villains to meet, hidden plots to expose, and great acts of courage to discover. Stay with us as we continue next week to learn from ordinary people whom God used to change the world. Let's pray. Lord, we want to grow in our leadership. All, every single person in here, the cry of our hearts is that we could be the type of people that others get influenced in a positive direction. So Lord, I pray this summer you would take our leadership to another level and that we would put into practice the concepts and the principles that we're deriving from your holy word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the grace to lead well, to lead like Jesus, and to be worthy of the honor and the respect of those in our lives who give it to us. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, wonderful book and these great leaders. Our hearts are open, God. Change us and mold us and shape us, we pray now, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ. And we all said, amen. Amen.